Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is Alfie Jackson. Alfie Jackson was the lead singer in Naughty's band The Holloways. We spoke about his early life growing up, how he got into music, how he met the the band, and was managed by former guest of the podcast Beans on Toast. We also spoke about the London scene, his career in the band, and then the breakup of the band as well, which the band went through some, some pretty hard times. We, we also touched on writing with other people and some of his solo material. And then at the end, Alfie picked his heroes to come for a dinner party. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast, and I'll be back again with another one very soon. Um, Alfie Jackson, um, most famous for being in a naughty's band, The Holloways. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Naughty, uh, it's a pleasure band. to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, yeah. Um, I love the fact that it was called The Naughties, because it just made you feel cheeky, naughty rascals at the time, which we basically were, so... <laughs> it was the best named decade. Yeah. What we do to start off with is I just kind of go back to the start of um, early life growing up, what you were like as a kid, how family life was and all that, things like that. So just take it away from there, Alfie. Um, well, born in Leeds and um, my dad used to... My mum and dad split up when I was about five or six or something. And my dad used to take us on on Saturdays and he'd often take us to the cinema, the lounge in Leeds it was. And uh, one weekend, my brother was ill, he was 18 months older than me, Philip. So my dad just took me and it was Back to the Future. And, you know, the opening scene, got all the clocks ticking away. And then it just, close-ups on Marty just turning all the knobs up on the amplifier, and then on the guitar as well, and then he's got the pick in his hand and it catches the light. And I was just like, this is so cool. I was just like hooked straight away and then he hit it and goes flying into the loud, into the amp. And then later on he's like playing Johnny Be Good and stuff and just after the after the film was like, I've got to get a guitar, what was that song? Was My dad's a big rock and roll fan, rock and roll DJ, and so he got me educated into rock and roll off the back of hearing Johnny Be Good in that film. And then he got me an encore guitar from from Argos, like, I don't know, about 25 quid, like a classic walk, classical. Yeah. With nylon strings. So that's where I started. <laughs> so when we moved from Leeds down to Mount Mowbray in Leicestershire when I was like nine. And then I sort of grew up mainly there till I, was, till I went up to uni and then down to London. Um, but it was a good place, Melton. And that's where I had my first band called Marvel. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to be a footballer up until the age of about 14, 15, and then until everyone started to want to have fights and putting people in wheelchairs and putting knives in their socks and driving cars around the pitch at our time. I was like, nah, <laughs> not having any more to do with this. And then, uh, then I was working on a fruit and veg stall uh, one Saturday morning. I got a scar on my finger still. Um, I had to cut a cucumber in half. And I just went straight through the cucumber and threw my finger and went to the hospital and the nurse said, you've got to keep it clean, go home. And the chart show used to be on ITV on a Saturday, like at 11 or 12 or something. Yeah. And Oasis came on with Supersonic. And I was like, what is this? This, is, this band sounds so cool, looks so cool, this song's amazing. So I picked up my like crappy encore acoustic that I'd had since I was younger and never really learned that much because didn't have the right books or anything. 
But I just picked it up with a bandage around my finger and like figured out how to play Old MacDonald had a farm and last of the summer wine just by ear and realised you could play melodies on a guitar. I never thought of that before. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I heard the deal now, 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 now in the supersonic riff. And then I was just like, OK, went into the school on the Monday. I was like, going to form a band. We're going to do it. We're going to form a band. I spoke to all the lads who had already been playing instruments for years. So you lot were forming a band and this, none of them took me seriously. And then about a year later, we sold out the, the Charlotte in, in Leicester, which has since been torn down along with many other classic venues, unfortunately. That's kind of where it all started. Um, right. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you were in this band, Marvel. Um, any other bands? Or what happened with you then going to London? Any other bands? Uh-huh. For me, no, it was, um just just Marvel and then I went to London because I did a me- media studies course. We took right. a year out to try and get Marvel like going properly, but it didn't, didn't quite work out. Um, so I ended up doing a media studies course um, and then went down to London and worked at ITV for a couple right. of years. What was the intention then with the media studies? Because I, I did a media studies course as well and this is the first time I've actually used any of my media studies skills doing this podcast right. 20 years down the line. It's been, um, it's been very useful to me. I mean, out of, off the back of GCSEs, the, my most influential teachers convinced me I should do economics, accounts, geography and English. And that coincided with finding Oasis and falling in love for the first time with a girl and mm-hmm. just becoming completely distracted from from the study and, and being interested in balance sheets and profit loss margins and stuff and supply side economics. We used to have this teacher in, in economics called Miss McHugh and she always used to say, draw, draw this thing on the on the whiteboard, G and T, like government expenditure makes the party go, gin. G was the gin, government expenditure and T was the tonic. She was like, if you put more G in the party, the party will go with the swing. If you put more tonic in, more taxation, then it won't go with so much. <laughs> so it was, that's that's about the only thing I can remember from economics. But I just, yeah, failed massively. Um, just thought, no, nah, all I need is a guitar from once I started pl- playing it and got the band going. Nothing else interested me. Um, I ended up getting put on report because um, my attendance and everything was really bad. Um, so then we tried to do the band, and it didn't quite work out. I thought, well, I need to do something creative. I have to be doing something creative, because I just always have ideas for all sorts of stuff. And media studies seemed like the logical choice. And um, well, I really loved it, really enjoyed it, and did really well. Um, and yeah, got a job at ITV. So you know, one of the few people who actually ended up getting a job in the field in which they trained and studied. And it did look promising uh, when I was at ITV to begin with. It was quite an open uh, pl- place where you could sort of move horizontally and you could have ideas and it was a team effort. But as more of the ITV companies like Carlton, Granada and Yorkshire TV all merged, it became more compartmentalised. I don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> and um, my job just became much more narrow and became really repetitive and... I just got frustrated. And the whole time in London, I was increasingly looking at enemy for ads 
Great. I was a singer for another band for for a while before the Holloways actually. Um, and we did a couple of gigs, and actually played in it. We did actually do a gig in Nambuka just around the time I started meeting the Holloways lads. And yeah, then my time at ITV came to an end because they could see I wasn't interested. And um, they offered me like a a deal to sort of give me a few grand to as a part in. Thanks. I wasn't sacked so much as a, you know, we can see this isn't for you. And, um, you know, it was good of them. And it gave me a few months to sort of get myself and the band going. And then I just I just started going out in London. Um, I just moved to, to Holloway as I lost my job there. It was a strange set of coincidences that led me to Holloway. And um, my mate who lived in Holloway was... Um, also worked at ITV, he put me up for a while because my girlfriend at the time, I was living with her and her parents and they kicked me out. So I ended up in Holloway staying with him. And then we went down to the garage at the bottom of Holloway Road and there was Dave and Jay, Dave being the drummer and Jay being some toast, who was our manager. Yeah. We're DJing there and we met some girls and for some reason he said to his, this girl that my name was Alfred, which is the name of his granddad. My real name is David. Mm -hmm. I fell asleep at this party and woke up with everyone going, Alfie, Alfie, Alfie. Wake up, and I'm like, oh, Alfie, I'm Dave. No, he's Dave, this, the drummer of the Holloways to be. So that was how I got, met the Holloways guys and became Alfie. It's a really bizarre run of circumstances. Yeah, because um, I, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've, I was looking up, searching you online and things like that over the last couple of months, and um, obviously on Wikipedia, it says David Jackson. I thought that must be a mistake, and <laughs> um, because I've just always known you as Alfie. So yeah. I mean, so how long's that been? Then that's been like yeah, well, that, was, been uh, that was that was two thousand four. Yeah, two thousand four. It was like I say, we just I'd just gone moved to Holloway, staying at this lad's house before I actually moved there because I was in West London, and yeah, just all these little weird coincidences. I became Alfie. You know, I, I started going to Nambuka because Dave and Jay were running Sensible Sundays. It's like an open mic sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I started going to that and uh, I didn't try to introduce myself as David or something. And everyone was like, no, he's Alfie, that's Dave. So, yeah, I gave up after a while. It's funny, I've always had nicknames. At school, I was always Jacko. I've never been David. Just to hey. teachers, parents and employees. So I, I mean I've had uh, I've had Jay on the podcast as well, and um, so we obviously we touched about a bit. Um, yeah, I heard that one. Yeah, we touched about a bit Nambuka and stuff like that. But obviously we'll we'll show the the formation of the Holloways. Then when did when did the when did you get Brandon Rob? Well, I was going out with a girl who's an actress, and there was uh, she went to Mount View Theatre School, whatever it was, in Crouch End. And um, she had a show, and I went to see it. And Bryn was doing sound and lighting. And then there was a do at the pub afterwards in Crouchen, which is now a super drug. <laughs> <laughs> it was an all bar one. I think it was an all bar one, yeah. And I was just at the bar and just got chatting to the guy standing next to me at the bar. It turned out to be Bryn. And the funny thing was as well, I just got chatting to a bar, the guy at the bar and the garage was Tristan over me who ended up producing a lot of Holloway stuff, a lot of Frank Turner yeah. stuff, now manages the lottery winners. Um, and yeah, just standing at the bar and chatting to the guy next to you leads to beautiful things because <laughs> me and Bryn just like straight away hit it off. 
And I used to carry this little metal, like, cigarette holder around with me. But I didn't smoke. It just had these little mini self-printed flyers that I'd done saying wanted, I think it's like insanely dedicated musicians for melodious, raucous, indie rock pop project. And I just used to like have that with me everywhere I went, just determined to find people. And I was like, gave him one. He's like, well, I used to play the guitar a bit. I was like, okay, you can play bass then. If you can play the guitar a bit, you can play the bass. Knowing sorts of bass players, but you know, you, you can transfer your knowledge and if you practice, you can... Yeah, and get get good enough to be, you know being in a in an indie rock and roll band. Um, so it's like, all right, I was like, you know, as long as you're up for it, that's the main thing. And my 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 thing was always, as long as people have got the right attitude, that surpasses ability for me every day of the week. And you know, I was proven right with Bryn as a as a social character and as a just person who would mingle and his energy on stage. You know, he's never the world's greatest bass player, but good mate, reliable and focused and, and, and up for it. And it, it worked. So me and Brim were the first members of the Holloways. And then we were sort of jamming with a few guitarists, trying to find the right person. Um, and then we were in Nambuka one Sunday, one of the sensible Sunday days. And this... Kid got on stage who looked like a young Bob Dylan and started playing and never stopped. Like, like basically couldn't, couldn't get him off the stage. He, was, he just kept doing loads of Bob Dylan covers and other bits and bobs and a couple of his own ideas. And we were like, he's great. He's really cool. Um, got a great vibe about him. And um, the girls all fancied him a bit as well. So it's like, yeah, it's a good sign. So then we, um, afterwards, we got chatting to him around the, uh, the, there was a little arcade machine in the corner near the toilets in Nambuco. It had like loads of old school arcade games on. And there's 1943, <laughs> was the one me and Bryn used to play all the time. You just top down, shoot them up. Mm -hmm. World War Two shoot them up. And we just used to play that all the time. So Rob was just like stood watching me and Bryn play that whilst talking about the plans for the band. And then the following Sunday, Dave let us use his room above Nambuka, me and Rob, to jam before going down to play at Sensible Sunday. So me and Rob went up into Dave's room for an hour or two, showed each other our songs and ideas, and then we learned a few harmonies and, and riffs. And then we went down and played a few of his and a few of mine, and Dave was like, that was brilliant, you guys are amazing, there's such chemistry, I'll be the drummer. <laughs> and then that was that. Then we had the, the lineup, And then a couple of months later, when the, the band really started to click and we started to get the real good songs together, um, Jay was like, "I gotta be, I gotta be involved in this somehow. I can't, can't, can't bring anything to the band musically, so I'll be the manager." And off, off, off we went. And you know, Tristan then, you know, was a key part. I wanted Tristan to be in the band massively um, as a keyboard player for us because I, I, you know, I liked the idea of being able to add something to the sound. Which would have been quite mad if you think about the Holloway sound now. If there had been keys, you know, it would have taken us in quite a different. But he was playing guitar for a band called Gill Kicker, mm -hmm. but you know, he he was like you know our George Martin um, through all the early demos, the original release of Generator and Two Left Feet on vinyl that were released through Pure Groove, uh, the original Happiness and Penniless, which had a vinyl B side. Oh, I think it was. What's the difference? I think it might have been What's the Difference, one of Rob's. 
the happiness and penniless. Um, I think that's the one. I, I like mind lime wire. I used to I used to get everything off of lime wire, and um, happiness and penniless. The the version that I got off of lime wire. I was disappointed when the album came out. The album one seemed kind of slower. Well, it was good, was it? Yeah. Um, the same. Uh, it was, the same. I can't find it anywhere. Might be on like an old iPod somewhere, but um, I, I can't find a way of playing it. I think my dad has got, has given me, I've, most, I've got to have sort of dig through my drawers and stuff, because I'm sure my dad's given me CDs with, with all our different demos on. I think there was three versions of Happiness and Penless. There was one that we did with the original version of Most Lonely Face, which was an upbeat version of Lonely Face. It was like mm-hmm. full on drums and down, 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 down. It was like yeah. full tempo. I had, I had that one as well, <laughs> And then we did a version with Tristan and then we did the album version, and and I think the one we did with Tristan, the vinyl version was, was better than, than the album version. Mm. It is a funny one. Yeah, I th- I think you get that a lot with bands. Obviously, all the stuff at the start, all the demos, especially the fans fall in love with them, and then they kind of they don't want to hear another version. Um, yeah, I mean it. It's like you grow up with your mum's cooking, don't you? And then someone else makes you a spaghetti bolognese or something, and you don't taste. Right. Yeah, it's not <laughs> that right. Sort of thing. If you, you know, once you once you've you've latched onto it and fallen in love with it, it's, it's hard to then better it, isn't it? Yeah, Nambuka. So Nambuka at that time, obviously there was used kind of bit, but there must have been just bands flying through there constantly. So it was. Yeah, it, I mean, kinda... it was amazing. You know, we we just used to go there. Pretty much every night of the week, and there would always be something good happening. There would always be a great band on, or an interesting night of of some form. Um, you know, one of our mates, I think he would do a comedy night. I don't know if it's once a week or every few weeks or whatever. But it was just such a great place, and it was funny, you know, because apart from Nambuka, up and down Holloway Road was mainly just sort of Irish mafia pubs with right. old boys in them. And, you know, you had Camden, you had East London and everything, but Holloway Roads, there's quite an... I, I mean, all right, down, down, you get down to Highbury Corner and stuff, you start getting a few few things. But I, I'm trying to think of another area where one pub had such a profound effect on an area without other venues of 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 the same scene being been close by mm. it was you know such a little hub of activity and you know it's just walking distance from us all the time and upstairs and downstairs you know upstairs afterwards or even downstairs afterwards the lock-ins mm-hmm. you know I, I wasn't one of the hardcores it's interesting i can't remember who i was watching recently on a youtube chat but someone was saying you know, you talk about rock and roll and everything, but you will find quite often the, the sort of the singers in the bands and stuff are often the ones bed home earliest. I yeah. mean, I, I had to, if if I didn't, I'd just lose my voice. I mean, 
I'd end up on tour, you know, you're drinking and you're partying every night and you just, you're shaving off like half a note of your range every night. And by the end of the tour, you're just like, ah. you don't even <laughs> speaking like Jay Beans on toast because he didn't go to bed early, you know. <laughs> you know what his voice is like. He, he, you know, he would thoroughly burn the candle. Um, you know, but it work, works for him. But singing our songs, you know, like trying to sing dance floor, I'll stand on the dance floor up there. It's just like, nah. It got got to some gigs and it's like spitting blood on the microphone trying to sing the songs if you've been partying too much. So I had to be careful. So with with Nambuka, could you kind of, if you didn't have a gig on, could you basically just go in there and say, look, I want to play and there's always a chance of getting a gig in there? Our first ever gig was we just basically invited ourselves onto the bill because we, we were rehearsing down at, um, oh, where were we used to rehearse? doesn't matter. We were on the way back and um, Gemma, the drummer, from the original drummer in Shambles, mm-hmm. who you interviewed recently, yeah, uh, called Dave and said, Baby Shambles have been kicked off the, um, the Hammersmith like festivals thing that was happening there because they were late or whatever. Like mm-hmm. all, all these fans wanted to see him. Can we come and play at Nambuka? And as soon as he got off the phone, I was like, well, we're supporting then. I was like, so we're not ready. We've only done a few years. I was like, yeah, we are. Come on, bollocks to that. Let's just do it. And and so that was so your first gig? Yeah, Dave That's was so mental. nervous about doing it. Um, and it was funny because I think they had their stuff set up on the stage. So we just played I think we sort of played just in front of the stage and the stage used to be tiny in Nambuka before they expanded it. So it was like me, Bryn and Rob were on the floor and Dave was basically on a riser. He was on the stage, but we were the same level as the crowd and it was packed. So you just got people three front in, three feet in front of your face on the same level as you, as your first gig, absolutely rammed sweating like nobody's business. I don't even know if the smoke, there was still smoking at that point, 2004, I think there might have been. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think it was about yeah. 2007 that came in, was it not? Yeah, because I remember we went, we did a gig in Ireland, in Dublin, which was it's still in one of my top four, four gigs, four or five gigs, tiny pub in Ireland, went mental. But I remember going over there and, the, and thinking it was weird because they'd already had the smoking ban in place. So yeah, it was definitely still smoking. So yeah, it was just this sweaty, smoky, you know, anticipated, pissed up atmosphere of Baby Shambles fans. And uh, we just absolutely went for it. And, you know, it went absolutely mental. I can always remember as well, uh, (laughs) there was this Swedish girl who was part of our scene. She just like ran across the front of us as we were playing and just like flashed her boobs at us. It's just... One of those things that just sticks in your head, that f- first ever gig experience, just stays with you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Never forget a face or a pair of boobs. <laughs> the gigs are, the gigs are um, always the most enjoyable. Do see like with the, the 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 fans level with the stage? I, I've seen um, one of your pals, Larrick and Love. I've seen them. Uh, the garage in Glasgow, and that was the same thing. I mean, I was pissed on the life out of them at the end, saying they were like, um, they were like the Libertines with violins. Yeah, they um, were great. 
obviously, like, around about that time in Nambuka, obviously, Jay was there. Um, Frank Turner and all that, they would all be coming up at that point as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny one with Frank. Because, yeah, we, we took him on, on tour as, as support because he was one of our mates. <laughs> mm. And now he's, like, absolutely huge. Um, but it, it was um, a good mate of of ours, especially Dave's. Um, Frank used to come and play the, the Sensible Sundays quite often. And I always remember he used to cover Dancing Queen by ABBA. And I just said, this is really funny that he's covering Dancing Queen. Um, I always remember being upstairs in, in one of the bathrooms upstairs where Jay and Dave lived and Tree who was our tour manager um, and the infamous Tom Frog and Kid Harpoon there, you know, there's so many people up there Yeah. Um, and we were just like having a jam in the bathrooms like me, Rob and, and Frank were in there and he was like showing me some of the, the his early tunes that that got onto his first album and I was like showing him some of the ideas that got onto our first album and I remember I had this idea for Two Left Feet I had sort of the lyrics and this can't really dance but baby when you dance with me idea and Rob had this dun 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 riff mm-hmm. and he had this bit like where are we gonna go where are we gonna go at the end of the night and it just fit perfectly so we just like what with Frank sort of in the room with us sort of stuck them together and then then I went into Dave's bedroom. I was like playing it to him. I was like, "Yeah, we just stuck this together." He's like, "Oh, maybe you should change the lyrics just to make it a bit more, I don't know, real about you know about about the way we live and stuff." Because I remember I had some really quirky lines like, "Let's let's have a dance and take a trip to France and have a drink of English tea." Was one of the original lyrics in Two Left Feet, and uh, yeah, Dave Dave was very good at like suggesting. So is Bryn, you know, saying what's working and what's not working in, in the stuff me and Rob came up with. Right. But I just always remember that, remember that night with, with Frank, the, the, when, when two left feet came together in, in a dirty little bathroom. So did, uh, did Frank get a credit for that in the album, no? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, Frank, Frank was just didn't really... Um, do anything writing wise we were just sort of playing each other stuff um but holloways we, we you know if, if dave or Bryn had sort of made some suggestions and stuff then you know we would always sort of give 10 15 percent if someone had like made some suggestions that we we always sort of tried to reflect who contributed contributed what but what we did do was said whilst we're all mates and the band is is a band and, we, and together we'll we share all the royalties equally that's what we did and then we said if we end up parting ways then whoever has written what takes their fair cut and my argument for that was i was absolutely skin staying at home quite often on nights when everyone out was out partying just working my ass off on songs and not having any money and just eating on milk and bread you know i was basically toast and cereals most yeah. of the time that's milk and bread line from uh, happiness and penniless and i was like today it's like you know you you're making an absolute fortune doing frog and uh nambuka and, and all this that's what you're putting your time into and you're you're earning from it yeah this is what i'm putting my time into so 
I want to learn from what I'm putting my work into. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. getting anything from from your work. So, but I said, you know, while the band's together, let's let's just split everything equally, and hopefully we'll stay together forever. But I said otherwise, if the band does fall apart, then afterwards, you know, what well, my options might be limited. So, yeah, and you know, the <laughs> few hundred <laughs> quid here and there that come through years later have been have been helpful in the some of the dry years shall we say since the holloways i'm now a signed songwriter again but there were a few years where things were pretty tight yeah pretty bomb um going back then the album the debut album which i've had like like you touched about when the lyrics and things like that because i think the thing that's that comes across in the album is it's it's like social commentary. See the way the way I've already talked about the first Arctic Monkeys album, that was like kind of social commentary what was going on in Britain at the time. But I think those were pretty much the same, but obviously with a different sound. No no kind of no trying to lump you into the same um box as Arctic Monkeys in any way, but definitely the social commentary came across. Which, which I I loved personally. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's why people connected with it. You know, it was very honest. Um, you know, you can only write about sort of what you know, can't you? So that's that's all it was really. Um, and I remember there was a few sort of magazine reviews at the time in like Art Rocker and things like that. And I always remember there was one line. That closed one review of us, saying London, these are your Arctic monkeys, cherish them, or something like that. Right. Um, but you know, we'd we'd written our songs, having never, never heard the Arctic monkeys, but can absolutely see see the parallels. It is a really similar sort of way of songwriting and delivering lyrics and energy melodically. There there were a lot of parallels. Um, you know, I think so many bands had been born out of the sort of Strokes, Libertines, Explosion. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those two bands created an excitement that was the spark, which, you know, set up all the fireworks in the noughties. Um, so it's, there was going to be a lot of bands sounding similar weren't there, in terms of sound and and vibe so yeah yeah because i um we were going we were going away on holiday um me and all my mates because you're going away we were all going away for the weekend and um my wife was driving and we i think we had the kids and we took one of my pals and i put it i put your album on and he'd never heard it before it's only maybe it's only been maybe two or three months and um he still says to me the now, that's like the greatest album that I've ever let him hear. <laughs> yeah. well, that's high praise. It's, it's, not, it's nice to hear things like that. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. I, I remember my parents put it on in, the, in their motorhome a few years ago. And I hadn't heard it in, in years. And it was just mental hearing it. Like almost with fresh ears as a stranger to it, 
as if mm-hmm. I hadn't had anything to do with it. And just kind of hearing it objectively in a way and just thinking, you know what, this, it really was, these songs were great. Yeah, that, um, there's not a bad song on it. It kind of, it just kind of, it, it goes through really fast because it's so upbeat and enjoyable. And that this is the thing, like a lot of the, the subject matter is, can be pretty sad, but it's kind of played in an upbeat manner. So you kind of, you're dancing a bit. You don't realise that you're dancing a bit to like a really sad song. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was sort of bittersweet, but it's always tinged with a hope and a trying to have a positive spin and, you know, let's let's try and enjoy it anyway. Um, yeah. So obviously, around about this time, then things started kind of unraveling a bit, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Could say that, yeah. Which is a, a big shame because you were, I mean, after that album, you were kind of flying. And then obviously, so what happened with the record company? It was just, I mean, we had a lot of luck on the way up and then a lot of bad luck on, on the way down. Um, you know, I think we, we we went up the most pointy mountain you could think of, really. You know, as soon as we got to the top, it was like a sh- sheer drop off the other side. Yeah. Um, we were 2007, like, second stage at Glastonbury, second most played song on Radio 1, Reviews in the enemy saying this time next year, biggest band in the world, and stuff like this. And you're just thinking, this is it, life sorted, you know, dream sorted. We're going to be making music and, and playing great gigs forever, and it's we're going to be like the Stones and stuff. And then 2008, just someone just put a massive cloud of shit falling bollocks on us, and I mean, it just all sort of started to happen at the same time. We were down at Sawmills in February 2008, and um, that's where Oasis, Supergrass, yeah. Muse, I think, had all done their debuts. Um, and, you know, in the Supergrass, in the second album sleeve, there was this round window, and they were all sat in this round window in the album sleeve. Remember album sleeves? <laughs> you want to know what they are, kids? Um, and... When I saw that round window, it was like it was next to this pool table in the in the living area, and some, in my head, I'd always seen it as this like thing in the corridor where all different little drum rooms were and stuff. And it was just bizarre to see this round window where Gaz Coombs and the Goffy and Mickey had all sat, and it was mental. But it was just like a dream, you know. We're here. The woman who owned it t- telling us stories about when she had to give Liam a slap a couple of times when they were there, and in the first week or so, it's just like yes, Cloud Nine. Everything's going great. And then about in the space of 10 days, we got the call that the label had gone bust because Pitbull, who was on the same label as us, there's a load of crunk ice on our label for some reason, TVT. Um, Pitbull had released some material with another label. TVT had sued, won all this money, invested this money. There was an appeal from the other label. TVT was supposed to give that money back didn't have that money anymore, went bankrupt, went into 
liquidation, all bands as assets became frozen. And we were there in, a, in you know, halfway through a month's residency at staying at Sawmills. And we just thought, what? This is bollocks. So then we ended up um, sort of, I think, paying for the rest of the recording out of previous advance. And we were still waiting on the, the money to come through on the second advance. And then also, like a couple of days later, my girlfriend's dad died. And then a couple of days later, my auntie, who my godmother, she this really bad fall in John Lewis apartment store. She had osteoporosis and just like shattered so many bones and stuff and was Easy. never left her house again after that. Um, and that, those things all happened while, while we were there down in, down in Sawmill. So I was just like, what the fuck is going on? And then all through 2008 after that, uh, you know, it was really a hard time for me personally, my girlfriend and her dad had died. It you know, switched things up massively for me personally. And then mm-hmm. as a band, we were frozen. We couldn't, we'd made this album and we had all this momentum and then we couldn't release anything. And we were talking to the labels like Sony and stuff and they're all saying, yeah, we really love this album, but we're not getting involved with this case with TVT because they said, you know, dealing with them in this situation and the guy, Steve Gottlieb, was apparently really hard to deal with anyway, the owner of TVT quite a hard businessman so it got to like later in the year like autumn winter time and rob was we're all really frustrated so rob wanted to do stuff so he started doing his other band musical differences Mm -hmm. rob skipper and the musical differences and um that created a lot of friction you know for me always being insanely dedicated you know you can ask the marvel boys what i used to be like in my first band um you know, I, I was very sh- sort of strict ba- band before anything. You know, if my mates had a wedding or s- someone had a birthday, I w- I w- if we had a gig, then there's no chance I was going to, even if it was one yeah. of my best mates, there's quite a few weddings. Like, no, we've got, we've got a gig. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. Because if, if you've got f- multiply four members by every sort of personal thing that can come up in their life, that's going to give you... Yeah, you'd never play a gig. Yeah, exactly. So everyone asking in the band has to prioritise it, otherwise it just doesn't work. Um, so I, I became quite annoyed, and it cr- created a bit of friction. And this was it was it just um, was it just you feeling like that? How how was like um, how did Bryn and Dave feel about? Well, Bryn Bryn was with me. Uh, Dave, very easygoing guy, very sort of understanding guy. Um, was saying, you know, we have to give Rob a bit more support in what he's doing. Um, whereas I was like, bollocks of that, he should be putting his, his efforts into helping us turn this around. So that's how that went. And then, you know, what, a couple of months later, we've we've got all our gear and recordings and stuff down in the, the basement of Nambuka. And then there's a... And there's the fire, so we lose all like two drum kits, God knows how many amps. My old guitar that I'd had for years, um, yeah. loads of other guitars, nothing insured. Mm-hmm. It's just like fuck's sake. I, I read then, somewhere it was it was like about twenty thousands worth of um, gear. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it, it's more than that, isn't it? Because like at that point you're kind of hanging the the band's gone, aren't you? So 
It's, it's yeah, it was just just unbelievable. And we 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 sort of then tried to get another manager in to sort of to help us as well. Um, he sort of kind of muscled in a bit. He was um, saying, you know. Jay should be doing this. Jay should be doing that. Jay said in his interview himself, he perhaps wasn't the best person for us to have once it got to a certain level. You know, he was brilliant at mm-hmm. sort of getting the vibe going early doors. But in terms of business acumen and experience of dealing with labels, contracts, and whatnot, he you know he simply didn't have the experience. So this guy sort of came in and had all these ideas and energy and suggestions and it, and it made sense. So he went in alongside Jay and he did make a difference with um, the gut people who took over us, which was the orchard mm-hmm. and managed to get us sort of some better things moving. But then like a few, a few weeks down the line, you know, so he was like, I'm just helping out. I'm just helping out. And then the next thing we know, our accountant, when we're speaking to our accountants, it's like, yeah, I just paid like five grand or something like this to, can't remember how much it was. Um, to to the, this guy who's, who's been co-managing, and you're like, what? We we didn't. There's no discussion about that. He, so he just said he was just helping us out. And then when we tried to say, you know, what's going on? You said you're helping out, and now suddenly we're like a load of grand out of pocket, and we're all skint because we didn't get the next advance through. And then he like fell out with us. So then we were sort of managerless, robless, Daveless. It was just then it was just me and Bryn. And the, but the album was recorded, wasn't Yeah, the album was recorded February th- two thousand eight, and then yeah. this, this is now. This now we're talking. This is by, by the point this happened, it's like February. This is like a year later. Right. So, obviously, the way you're feeling with that, with everything that's happened, um, is it kind of just a drive to kind of get the album out? Is it like? you need to get the album out for your own kind of sanity. Yeah, yeah, that and, you know, loads of reasons. Like, otherwise, it's a waste. Um, and the only thing I wanted to do since I picked up the guitar as a teenager was, was put music out. So to me, it was a no-brainer. We've got to get this album out and we've got to tour it. Um, so I ended up finding new members and we knew this other guy who ended up being being our manager. Um, so we, we did sort of end up getting some kind of semblance of normality back together. But, you know, after a year... Yeah, you, you lose a lot of momentum, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more than a year, really, because you go from when... Uh, great. So this is Great Britain was released. Well, we were hoping to get the the second album out, sort of summer two thousand and eight, um, and then, then it was a long time down the road in two thousand nine before we were actually able to get it out. Because by that point, Rob wasn't in the band anymore. So we thought, well, we've got all these songs that Rob sung on the album. We're not going to be able to do them live. Mm-hmm. So then we had to write some more and record that and sort of get it all in place and then just this is like everything sort of happening 18 months later than than planned yeah we just lost all the momentum and you know i i, I think it was a good album it by the time it came out it the scene had changed quite a lot 
um, radio had changed quite a lot and just the feeling of being the Holloways obviously wasn't wasn't the same after everything that had happened <laughs> and, and not having the same people but it just seemed like the the lesser of two bad options try and start something completely from scratch but yeah it felt like the better the yeah the least bad option well that's as a hank is it as a good album it's it's good um some cracking songs when it against standards and winners were one that's a that's a cracker um yeah but i don't know where i'm going with that now um it, it must have just been so hard kind of mentally for these to carry on and put that out and the thing with us at the time i didn't know about all these struggles you kind of you just as a fan or you see as a band releasing an album and then yeah a couple of years down the line releasing another album the fans don't always realize what's happening in between so like it must be harder for you as knowing which went between that and then we just yeah, kind of well, find it hard. years down the line. It, it was really hard, and you know it was still it was still fun with with the new boys. You know, I I can play to three people in a pub and enjoy it. Yeah, I always will and play enjoy playing music live. So it, you know it was, it was still fun. It was good to get it out, and I'm glad I'm glad that we did. It's it's just such a shame, you know. We, I you know, I, I go on Spotify or something like that now, or anywhere, and I see the wombats with so many plays, and see how well Frank's done, and bands like um, you know, the Pigeons went on and, and did did well, and yeah, uh, Cortinas, you know, all all these bands that we played with, who you know, great bands and great lads, really happy they did well, but never ever thought these bands are better than us and they're going to have much better careers than us I I thought we you know we were on the same trajectory and you know you see what they've done and that's what I thought we were going to do and, and it, it does you know break the heart a little bit seeing yeah. that no you're not because I'm you know I'm glad that they've done well I'm, I'm really happy for them but it's just it's just sad that we yeah are, but obviously all being well if um, you didn't hear all the circumstances then you should probably be in the same place and that's what I mean, yeah. your music would have evolved with the, yeah, with the time definitely. Uh, yeah, so would. obviously uh, how has the relationship with band members now obviously rob no longer with us obviously but well that's also the big thing you know i was just thinking i was about to say you know rob would hopefully still be with us had everything carried on going well because probably one of the, the things that led him to seek other means of of feeling good and being creative was because of the downward trajectory you know he, he did pretty well with his like hairs and, and musical differences and stuff mm -hmm. you know they were really good bands but it's always going to be hard to get get a new band up to the same trajectory as something that's that's done well, isn't it? Um, so you know you, you can't help but think it's it'd still be with us. Yeah, it'd be great. And I think I I worked so well alongside Rob 
as a writer, I think we we brought out the best in each other in a sort of competitive, you know, there's, there was, I think there always is in bands where there's two creative forces. I think you push each other as well as encourage each other. I think it's it's helping each other, but you're also trying to outdo each other a little bit as well. Yeah. I think there's, no, there's nothing bad about healthy competition. Nah. And I think we it'd been really fascinating to see where we'd have pushed each other to as creative forces. So that's 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 the the saddest thing, mm. you know. And there's already a lot of sad things there. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it's definitely a tough time. And obviously, now you're you're writing, aren't you? And you're you've done some solo stuff as well. I seen you released some stuff in twenty seventeen. You released a single, which yeah, I released a few bits and bobs. Um, I did one. Um, for that boy who was photographed in the red T-shirt who who was washed upon the beach, mm-hmm. the Syrian boy. Um, and, you know, really, I put weeks of work into into recording and producing and making the, the video and spoke to his auntie to see if she was cool with it and spoke to loads of different charities and got War Child involved with it and everything. And, and really, really put my heart and soul into it and it it just didn't do much um you know enemy had it on their homepage for a day like is this the most heartbreaking christmas song so i put it i put it out at christmas time and yeah it just it just didn't just didn't catch just didn't like spark or anything and that was that was yeah. like kicking the teeth and then i did like i guess that's love these days and uh, best be on my way and if I could be an astronaut, there's a, there's a few songs. Yeah, um, you can get them on Spotify, can't you? Because that's yeah. just a, I mean, I only heard the, the one about the Syrian boy a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, the last holiday, that one. Uh, it's, I mean, it's never came into my uh, stratosphere until then. And But I think it's a brilliant song. It sounds, it's like, it's, it's like a, you still get the kind of Holloway's sound, but obviously... Yeah, there's an element of that in there. Yeah, I mean, it's for me. It's kind of hard not to, isn't it? It's like it's my voice. Yeah, it's always and my my writing style. Um, even though you know writing for others now, writing every sort of genre is like dance music, folk, country, pop. Do do sort of everything, but whenever it comes to sort of me singing on something, it's always going to have a little bit of that. But yeah, musically, it does have a bit as well. Mm. Um. But yeah, I'm working on working on stuff now. Um, so I've I've just built a house and I've got a studio, um, which I'm in right now. And mm-hmm. I've got, you know, sound treatment and decent mics and decent guitars and stuff. And learned a lot writing with other artists and other writers and producers over the last few years. How and does that? How does that work then? The the writing for other artists. How how do you kind of how, do, how does that take off? How do you kind of... Well, um, it's a mixture of myself seeking new bands. When I, cause I used to put a lot of nights on in, in London as a promoter um, at Jay and Dave's pub, for example. So I would find acts that way, but also my publishers set me up with with up-and-coming artists. Um, and then I just do loads of like 
chatting to people on social media if I think they're, they're, if they're talented and over the last year it's all been well 18 months or whatever it's all been done on Zoom mm-hmm. and you, normally you would just get in a studio yourself the artist and a producer normally and then you just sit down three strangers and open your hearts and and bare your soul and, and write a song which is sounds like quite a bizarre thing but what you find very quickly with people in music we're all very much cut from the same cloth and you it's once you let your guard down yeah you you all click very quickly and it's it's brilliant i love it i mean i always loved writing as much as playing live which most people don't but for me writing has always been a really magical thing that i'm writing something at the moment called why um and it's it's just like, like this whimsical look at the world and you know the, the thing the things that are going on the, the small things mm-hmm. you know like flowers trying to fight their way, way through through a cracked pavement and to you know the black lives matters thing and just just the whole juxtaposition of the beauty and the sadness that's in the world at the moment and just then this chorus line why and just this happens quite often over the years when you're writing a song and you you find the right bit at and you hit it in the right word and melody comes out at the moment and you just get this this feeling it's just magic's like the hairs yeah. it's not when you hear a song that blows you away it's when you're writing it it's the same feeling um so so doing that and being able to do that with other people on a regular basis and like i say learning and writing songs that you wouldn't be able to write on your own and writing songs that you can't write for yourself because they don't see your voice and your style and it's 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 so great when you've got these ideas like i, I come up with these mad little r&b like lyrics and and melodies and i'm like this is just this is an r&b pop song like i can't do it but these things just come to me and it's just great to have channels for them to flow into so i'm, I'm so happy that i'm i'm doing this now and you know despite everything that's happened i'm grateful for where where I am now because it's it's where I want to be. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I do want to sort of get out and tour again and tour an album again and everything. You know that that is an itch that will always be there as well. But doing this was always something I wanted to. Even even in the Holloways, I, I remember having songs and thinking it'd be great if I could do something with with these other ideas. I guess they're not yeah. Holloways. It must drive you mad having having songs in your head that you know that wouldn't be suited to the band or whatever. So. Um, if there's some way of getting them out some other avenue then it's definitely the way to go at it. It seems yeah. to be a thing like there's a lot of artists do it now, isn't there? It's no that you'd be surprised. Yeah, it's, that... it's become a real it's become quite quite the norm, yeah, to do co writing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's and it's really good just for networking as well. It's 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 a really healthy healthy thing to be doing um it's funny you said about the songs for the band and stuff because i have actually got a couple that are potentially going to be new new holloway's material um because you know we we were supposed to do a tour last year mm-hmm. and then this stupid fucking virus came along put paid to that and then we were supposed to do some festivals this year and again corona intervened um but we're looking at doing a tour, so I think we're talking about February. Right. And you know, Dave 
Dave was sp- supposed to be playing with us for the first time since 2008. So that was so, such an exciting thought. And um, our mate Sam McCarthy and Tristan, who who I used to live with, Sam, he was in the band with Tristan. And um, it was just going to be all the lads back together, basically, you know, Rob aside, but as, as close yeah. as we could possibly get. It was, I was so excited to be playing with Dave again. Um, but the fact that we were talking about tours and stuff and I've got these songs and I'm just like, well, why not new material to go with it? Yeah, that sounds excellent. And that's something that I've learned here anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, hopefully, I think, I would hope there's a lot of people who are still fond of the Holloways would be would be excited if there was yeah. some new stuff. I think it's kind of one of the cult bands that kind of people kind of, the way I see it, he's kind of ended too soon and obviously with the circumstances behind that, but uh, there's still kind of room for the Holloways somewhere. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's still, you know, there's a lot of bands who have come back and, and got going again and yeah, uh, yeah, who knows where it might go. Yeah. Um, but I'm also massively excited about the, the solo stuff I've been putting together. It's um, I mean, some of it does have the the Holloway's sort of social commentary, and there is some sort of guitar, electric guitar sort of vibes. But on the whole, it's quite a bit more mature. It's got often piano and strings, um, mm-hmm. and also I don't know, I'm gonna go go a bit electro with some some of the production as well. It feels like these days you can really mix things up. You don't have to. It doesn't feel like artists are really so penned in as yeah. to what they used to be. Feels a little, much more open now. And I think listeners as well are a lot more open. You know, it used well, to be that, like, this is my thing, but now everyone sort of seems to listen to a bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, that, that um, the girl you, you, you told me about, Gemma Rogers, um, that, that, I would never really listen to that. I'd never, uh, again, that would never really come into my world if you hadn't told me about her. Brilliant man, I've been listening to her the last week, man. Love it. She's great, isn't she? Yeah. So Wait, I'm, which songs I'm, have you heard? Yeah, uh, it's just the, uh, the Good Day, Bad Trip and yeah. um, Rabbit Hole just came out, didn't it? I like the kind of instrumentals as well. I was gonna see if you would let me use it on the podcast, maybe. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure. Um But I'm speaking to her um speaking to her next month and getting her on the right. show, so yeah, so I'm sure it'd be, be fine. She, she is w- with a label, so I don't know if there would be a conversation needed to be had yeah. in terms of usage on that side. Um, yeah, maybe shoot an email to her and, and to me, because my, my publishers might have to okay it, because yeah. my share as well. But, <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, shoot an email over, but... Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's crap and stuff. You can hear your you can hear your sound on it as well. Yeah. But she sounds like um that good day bad trap. She sounds like um it sounded like three different female artists. I sounded it sounded a bit like Laura Marlin at one point. And then there's a bit where it sounds like I, I don't know who it is, it's like one of the Manchester kind of nineties girl bands or something. Something like that, St. Etienne or something like that. There's there's Different nice. elements. I I really loved that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that stuff that I've done with Gemma. Um, 
the the album's is going to be great. Um, she she's a real talent. She's a real character. You'll have a good chat with her. Um, and she really brings out some great writing from me. She's she's brilliant to write with, lyrically, and visually. She when when I'm writing with her, she talks so much and and creates this like tapestry around you in your, in your head as you're writing and then that, that allows me to just then sort of like start pinning things to the things she's created yeah. around it um it works really well i mean we, we, we've done this thing as well called tale of two i don't know if you've heard any of that yet no that's it's, it's, it's me and her together it's like a dark folk thing uh we, right. we did four singles i'll have, have a look for check that it out, man. It's, it's really good it's really good stuff um and then the the Gemma Rogers solo stuff is is it's funny the t the tale of two stuff is like black and white and the uh, the Gemma Rogers stuff is like technicolor rainbow yeah <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll check that because I'll put all this in the the episode notes as well for the listeners so they can check it out as well um, so that's so that's basically at the end all we need to do now is for you to pick your your heroes to come for dinner. So, How many was it again? Uh, it's meant to be four, but I mean, some folk just... Jenna Clark, she picked about 15. <laughs> uh, couldn't get her to shut up at the end of it. Uh, so just kind of... It's just basically you kind of touching on who's kind of maybe influenced you or inspired you in some way. So, yeah, so just a few heroes and then what you're going to cook them for dinner. And don't say that you're not a good cook because I've seen that one of your pictures on Facebook and it's you stowing that saucepan. So, yeah, I, I, I like I like I like cooking. You know, I think it there's something very therapeutic about it. Yeah. Um, I love cooking. I love eating more. Um, yeah, it's so it's so hard, man. Um, I mean, some part of me in terms of having an interesting dinner is perhaps not not heroes you know i i kind of like to put surround hitler with like martin luther king and gandhi and i'd just like <laughs> sit back and see how that would go but <laughs> so I, I like to i mean i know I've, I've ranted on like nobody's business today but the holloways and my music sort of story is such a a rich one i sort of start going on about it and my mouth just like goes into overdrive so apologies if i've been a bit verbal diarrhea at times well it's been a pleasure uh but in terms of heroes, I mean, I'd have to have John Lennon. I know you, you and Jay hit upon John Lennon at one point about, you know, there are sort of rumours of him yeah. a sort of an edge to him. But, you know, I, I try not to judge people too, too harshly. You know, the circumstances that, that lead people to, to what they are, not justifying anything, but, you know, I, I often say, you know, people people who do bad things or say bad things doesn't mean the good things and the good things they say and do doesn't outweigh, you know what I mean? You judge people yeah. on, on, on a balance and just, you know, just purely him as a, as a music, musician and a writer and a singer and a soul, you know, you, you just need to look at Imagine to, to see... That, that he wanted good good for the world and you know imagine sort of resonates with me that's basically the the core of of what i 
sort of feel in my in my heart and bones. Yeah. And there's I try always try and get that through in a lot of the stuff I write. Um and just just to sort of be able to talk about the Hamburg times and how it all got going, I think it'd just be fascinating hearing it from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and I I respect Paul just as much just as much as a writer. Um you know, perhaps he's an even better writer than, than John was is you could argue. Um, but I think John as a character and his and his backstory would be would be very yeah. interesting. Um, and then I think I'd have to have Bowie. Mm-hmm. Obvious reasons, you know, just the colours he brought into not just music, culture as a whole. You know, he's just there's, there's no one like him. Um, producer as well. You know, the, the fact that he was sort of involved with Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and everything, it's just unbelievable. The the range of, yeah, of areas the, the he different covered. characters that he's kind of portrayed himself as as well. Yeah, I mean, just an absolute chameleon, cultural chameleon. Um, and, you know, I could have a word with him about his codpiece in Labyrinth as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think because oh man this is, this is so hard Smashing Pumpkins are probably my favourite band of all time Siamese Dream is probably my favourite album of all time right um, Billy Corgan's an interesting one isn't he I know, I know he was a massive control freak with the band and ended up re-recording their parts and stuff um, and now owns like a wrestling company and stuff. Would he? Would he be there? I think. I think Billy Corgan might have to be there just because. Is this all judging on just the people who've made yeah. the songs I love the most? It's you. It's your heroes. It's who you. Yeah. You holding high regard. Who would my final one be? I think. I think it'd have to be Dylan. As, as the, I know. I know these are all. Especially Bowie, Lennon, Dylan—they're all really obvious, but they're obvious for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, wordplay is something that's a massive part of my writing, and just the way he delivers a, a, a song because the lyrics he's written are so good, and he believes in it so much. Um, I read his book; it's a really good read as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just just because talking to these guys about songwriting and about what's inspired them to make these songs and how they got them from inception to production, I think would just be fascinating hearing that all go around in a circle. I think it would yeah. be pretty amazing. So yeah, be those four. That's good choices. My dog and and my dog after Bob Dylan. Nice. Yeah. Was he Dylan or Bob? He's Dylan. Dylan. He's Dylan. Well, he wasn't meant to be Dylan. He was meant to be Hendrix, but my wife wouldn't let me. Um, <laughs> so I said, well, if it's no Hendrix, it's Dylan. Good so, choice. Yeah. Um, they're that? brilliant choices, Alfie, man, or Dave. What do, do you get called in normal life? You just get called Alfie all the time? Yeah, pretty much everybody. It's only family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that calls me David. So yeah, yeah. St stay with Alfie. Cool. Um, and I, what would I cook? I mean, my favourite meal in the world is having grown up in Leeds is fish and chips. Nice. I just, you know, the, the the taste takes me back to being at my grandma's on a Saturday. Um, before my dad would take us to the lounge cinema, so it's just a magical thing that the way it's it's cooked in Leeds in batter. They don't do that in other places. They cook it in oil, and it's not the same. Right. Um, yeah, that's having seen classic. That docu Say again. Classic. Look, I, like four classic guests, and then just a, a nice easy meal. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a slight reservation without having seen that Seaspiracy documentary. Um, but I, ha I have seen sorts of voices and articles saying, you know, some of it is, is not true. I don't know if you've seen it. No. It's a really good watch. Just talking about, you know, the, the way the oceans have been treated. A real eye-opener and it's like, oh my God, I can never have fish and chips again. But, you know, it's a fantasy meal. In an, in an idealistic world where everything's all right and people can come back from the dead, so hopefully the fish can as well. So it's fish and chips. That's brilliant, man. That's a brilliant way to end it. Just one thing, actually, before we go, just obviously you're in Austria, aren't you? Um, yeah. how, how did that come about? Um, my girlfriend is Austrian. Uh, she was working in London and um, we met and sort of fell in love and... She was like, London's too expensive. I'm going back to Austria. And then I was like, all right, I'll go with you. And it's it's beautiful here, man. Um, really, really am happy. I mean, obviously, I miss the sort of buzz of being able to go to gigs in London and stuff and meet people and mingle and have great conversations over a few beers in a pub and that sort of vibe and stuff. And... But, I mean, everyone else has been missing out on that in the last year or so anyway. But, yeah. you know, I, I do, I have been, until Corona, getting over to, to the UK sort of every couple of months. And I, I usually stay for a good sort of three or four weeks for doing writing. And I, I will get out and about. And you actually end up appreciating it a lot more. Because yeah. What's life like? Is it kind of slower pace over there? Oh, yeah, mate. I'm like, I can't throw a stone to the next house. Right. Um, I'm just, I'm just like looking out the window now and it's just green trees and hillside in the distance. I mean, I, I, the view out the back here, we see a couple of rooftops, but it's basically almost just purely untouched. Um, and yeah, I look, there's a, a small town nearby. Um, and you know, there's there's a little bit of music. I've got a little sort of band going. We do some we do some sort of covers gigs and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I've taken up tennis out here. I just used to play football as a kid. Couldn't play afford to play tennis, but started playing tennis out here. But just drives me mad mainly. I'm just like screaming, fuck's sake, on the court <laughs> twenty every sort of few minutes because it's just infuriating. I run about like no one's business. And every time you think you've mastered a technique, you just start cocking it up again. It just <laughs> oh. Wise you but keeps keeps me fit, um, and it's, it's it's a good sort of little social thing. I've got, you know, a bunch of mates through through playing tennis, a bunch of lads, and we you know we get beers and stuff afterwards. And that so it's brilliant. yeah, it's a very different sort of lifestyle to living in the thick of North London. Yeah, it's nice, man. You know, it's just 
stress-free and it's funny I remember the first time I went back to London after I moved here I've been here for a few months it's the longest I've been out of London for aside from maybe touring but you know you're still sort of in cities and in England and stuff and I just you know I got over to London and I was on the London bus and this like girl just like stepped on the bus and just started going oi does this bus go like you know, it's just like rude talk to the bus driver and then and then, like, he, he gave her, like, directions and stuff. And she didn't even say thanks. And just, like, right. And just, like, stormed off the bus again. And just like, oh, my God, I don't miss that. Yeah. It's quite a shock to the city. It was, like, when I first moved to London, I remember it was, it took me a few months to acclimatise. I ended up getting home from work and doing, like, 20 press-ups as soon as I walked through the door. Because I was just so, like, shaken up by this intense, like, madness in, in, in London, which I hadn't been used to. I'd grown, grown up in a smaller town. Mm. Yes, it's a funny one, man. You you do sort of, unfortunately, sort of grow, grow this thick skin and get used to it, and it sort of sort of stops bothering you after a while. But I mean, I, I remained, tried to remain. I didn't try. It's just the way I've been brought up to be polite and friendly. And if someone is like older or or pregnant or anything like that, you know, you you try to help them and you let them first. Um, yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of it. It's just me, 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 which is you know. Yeah, sad. I find the thing is we somewhere like London. It's it's kind of the same in Glasgow, but to a lesser extent. But kind of people are that focused on what they have to do. They don't they don't even yeah. see other people. So that's it. And that's um, kind of when you look at that, it's just a, a way of life. It's it's really sad. I'd much prefer to be staying in Austria and. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, the, you know, the, the way of life here, the way people are, like, everyone is super friendly, everyone's got time for each other, Pe- people are helping out all the time, like, yeah, everyone's always helping each other out, if, if some, with building work or whatever, anything that's, that's going on, it's a really great community um, spirit, which I love, because that's kind of what I, I more grew up with, um, so I love that about here. Like I say, I mean, you, there are the, the positive elements of the hustle and bustle and gigs and stuff, which I miss dearly. But once everything starts settling back to normality a little bit and I can start coming over without the stress of, am I going to be able to get back into Austria and stuff? That, that's the worry for me at the moment. You know, yeah. what if the rules change? What if it's, it's just a massive stress? I haven't been back to the UK since. I was over Christmas 2019 mm. and seeing my family and all that time. Yeah, that must be a bit of a worry. But yeah, it's, it's, it's bollocks, man. Yeah. Thanks very much, by the way, for taking the time out of the day. It's been, it's been brilliant to speak to you. Thanks um, thanks for having me, man. Enjoyed it. It's always it's always a pleasure to talk talk about it. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.